Many people think that all religions are the same at the core, so it is wrong-headed and perhaps bigoted to believe that one religion is better than all the others. However, this idea that all religions are the same at the core is a misconception. So in this episode, I'm going to discuss religious pluralism and several views regarding the relationship between world religions. After explaining the views of religious pluralism, inclusivism, and exclusivism, I will show that a type of exclusivism is the best view because if truth is objective, then it is impossible for all religions to be true. So I hope you'll stick around and find out how Christianity relates to other religions in light of objective truth. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about religious pluralism. So, obviously, in this world we live in, there are many world religions like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and and many others, right? And the question for the Christian, really the question for a lot of people, just about anyone, is, you know, what does this mean for... Uh, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my religion? What does this mean for my beliefs? How do all these religions relate to each other? Uh, and, and that's the question that we are going to be covering today, this question of religious pluralism. How do all these religions relate to each other? Uh, specifically, I am going to be arguing how Christians should look at this in light of everything that we've already covered in this series, okay? So, um, as always, I'm going to start with a Bible passage that is going to relate to this. Today I'm talking about religious pluralism, and in the next lecture I'm going to be talking about the question of uh, the unevangelized. What happens to the people who never heard the gospel? Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? What happens to them? So this verse that I'm going to show you has touches on both of these issues is why I've chosen it. So the our, our introductory verse uh, is John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, um, I, you can probably guess why I'm showing you this verse. Um, obviously, you know, this is, a, this is a verse that people talk about a lot when we get into religious pluralism. What about, what happens to people who've never heard the gospel? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, obviously, on the surface, seems to be saying that he is the only way to salvation, right? Now, um, I thought this was interesting because I looked into this a little bit more, dug into the commentaries, wanted to see exactly what uh, the you know, biblical scholars think that Jesus is saying here. And uh, it, it pointed me to something that I had never realized about this passage. Some conservative biblical scholars that I looked at think that Jesus is talking about uh, and making a reference to some words that we see in the Psalms. Uh, one Psalm they think he's referencing is Psalm 86, verse 11. That, that verse says, Teach me your way, Lord, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. 
In uh, Psalm 16, verse 11, it says, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. So you see here in Psalm 86, it's mentioning that the psalmist wants uh, the Lord to teach him the Lord's ways so he can live by his truth. In uh, Psalm 16, it says that uh, God reveals the path of life to the psalmist. So uh, looking back at our John 14, verse 6 passage, we think that this sheds light on what Jesus mentioned. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is taking these uh, requests of the psalmist to God and applying them to himself. Jesus is saying he is the way, he is the truth, right? He is the way and uh, he is the truth that the psalmist is seeking. And also he says he is the life. So he is the path of life that will lead to an eternity in God's presence, right? That's what he's saying here. Uh, and, you know, after saying those things, saying that Jesus is the way, he is the truth of God's righteous ways, and he is the path to eternal life, uh, he also makes this very, um, I think, obvious and straightforward claim. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And this indicates that he is the bridge between humanity and God the Father. This is important because in, in Old Testament times, the high priest served as an intermediary between the people and God. The, the high priest would make sacrifices on behalf of all the people, and he would intercede on behalf of all the people. If you listen to the episode on Jesus' resurrection, I believe, uh, is when we mentioned it. We mentioned things that are important about Jesus to Christianity. Um, and one thing that we mentioned was that Jesus, one of his roles is to play an intermediary between God and humankind. So th this, this verse would, would serve as more support for what we were talking about there. You know, because if Jesus wasn't acting as our high priest in heaven right now, as we think, as uh, uh, theologians seem to think he is, there would be no one uh, to intercede directly to the Father and no one to offer sacrifices. Basically, there could be no forgiveness of sins without Jesus acting as our high priest. Jesus' death on the cross acted as the sacrifice that for all time satisfies the Father's wrath. And now Jesus is that high priest that acts as the mediator between God and man. Anyways, um, I just thought this was a great verse. We went a lot in depth into it. We won't go as in depth in a lot of other verses that I'm going to be showing you over this in the next lecture. But uh, this is a great passage that just kind of shows something that we're going to be looking at. Another interesting thing I just wanted to mention really quickly. I've heard this before when I was re when I was studying world religions. Uh, so it doesn't. This isn't necessarily what Jesus is saying here. So don't take me to be saying this is what the passage means. But I think it could kind of. I think it does sort of apply in this way. Uh, an interesting thing I've heard is that you know Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, when you look at world religions, when you look at uh, the the different ways all the cultures of the world um, act and the worldviews they have, uh, it's interesting because it seems like. Uh, Jesus' words here kind of appeal to everyone. If you look at Asian religions, uh, more Eastern philosophy uh, type thought, uh, you see that everyone is looking for the way. E even uh, even some Eastern or uh, some Asian religions involve people saying, "This is the way," you know, uh, to, "This is the way to enlightenment." This is the path to enlightenment. 
so uh, they they they'll say uh, religious scholars say that East um, Asian people, Easterners, are looking for the way. And then when you look at the way the Western world works, uh, Westerners are concerned with the truth. They're seeking the truth. And Jesus in this passage is saying that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So um, no matter whether you're looking for the way or looking for the truth, those, those are found in Jesus Christ. So I always thought that was interesting. Not necessarily exactly what the passage is meaning. I'm just saying that you could kind of apply it in that way. Uh, but uh, let, let's get on to our questions for reflection. As always, I just asked some reflection questions up front. You can be thinking about this. You can be replying to this in the in the comment section of a video or maybe sending me some an email with comments. If you go to my academic website, bcalkelts.com, there's a contact uh, tab you can click on and send me emails that way. Uh, here's our reflection questions for this episode. What do you think is the most compelling piece of evidence or what are the most compelling pieces of evidence for the reliability of the new testament and the truth of jesus resurrection and why another question reflection is how do you think the world's religion started Uh, a few more Uh, third one is have you heard the statement all religions are the same at the core number four is do you think all religions have something or several things in common and five, if so, does this have any implications for the nature and or uh, origin of religions? So just some things to be thinking about. So as I mentioned in this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, trying to answer this question. Of how do religions relate to each other? What is their relationship? Um, is, is, is one religion the best and all of them are false? Uh, if you're someone who holds to this one particular religion and you see a world full of other religions, what, what do you do with that? And that's basically what we're looking at here today. There's three main views on the relationship between world religions that I was going to cover. These are actually families of views. So within each view, I was going to mention several particular, uh, more nuanced uh, versions of it. But it's uh, religious pluralism. There's exclusivism and inclusivism, okay? So we're going to be talking about all three of those today. The first one, oh, and let me mention, I'm going to talk about all three of these, uh, give examples of them, and then basically at the end of this, I'm going to make an argument that uh, a specific type of inclusive, excuse me, I'm going to make an argument that a specific type of exclusivism, namely Christian exclusivism, is the correct view. Uh, Okay, so that's what we're going to be doing. So the first one is religious pluralism. Okay, Uh, on my slide I have the the definition is uh, religious pluralism is defined as the view that all or many religions are the same in some important respect. Now I'm getting these terms and definitions from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. I wanted to point that out. I got, I got these from a specific article in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy titled Theories of Religious Diversity. So if you're interested in reading uh, this beyond what I say here today, you can go to that. The website is www.iep.utm.edu. I got the, the article that I got was um, dated uh June 2019. So sometimes they update the article. So if you see it uh, and it doesn't have exactly what I listed, then maybe it was updated. But anyways, uh, religious pluralism is the first view that we're looking at. So like we said, this says that uh, religions are diff- are similar in some one in, 
well, it doesn't have to be one, but usually this is the view that religions are the same in some important respect, right? And like I said, this is a family of views. So if someone were to say, I'm a religious pluralist, you'd need to say, what kind of religious pluralist are you? Because there's several, and hopefully they know exactly what kind they are. But maybe they won't, But you, and, and after listening to this, you can tell which which type. Well, uh, there's four there's four different types of it. There might be more than this, but these are the ones that I thought was important to discuss. Naive pluralism, core pluralism, Hindu pluralism, identist pluralism, okay? So, uh, and like I said, I'm just going to be explaining these up front. Whenever I get to the end of the lecture, I'm going to, um, I'm going to argue against most of these. I'm going to argue against pluralism. I'm going to argue against inclusivism. And I'm going to argue for a specific type of exclusivism. So, anyways, as I go along, I'm just going to be explaining these, not necessarily arguing for it against them, okay? So, um, naive pluralism is the view that there are no differences between religious traditions. So, But there's even different types of this. But uh, some naive pluralists think that all religions are good. Some naive pluralists think that all re all religions are literally true, and some religious uh, naive pluralists think that all religions are meaningless. Okay, now this view is called naive pluralism because it is not a view that is held by religious scholars. It's usually a, a kind of view that is held by lay people uh, who haven't studied religions and and don't know the ins and outs of of, of religion. Okay. You know, for example, just just let me uh, explain uh, uh, these three that I have listed there. And so, so take for example the belief that all religions are good. Uh, they say that this is a naive view because there are some, there have been some cults and some religious groups that have held harmful uh, beliefs and harmful practices. Maybe, you know, in, in, when you look at the history of religion, <laughs> you can see that there's been some religions that have had human sacrifice, right? So we wouldn't think that just because it was a religion, it was good, right? So that's kind of a naive view. Um, definitely the view that all religions are literally true is a naive view, right? Because we're going to be discussing this a lot in this lecture, but um, when you look at the claims that religions are making, it is just obvious if, if you believe in objective truth, and if you, if you don't, by the way, um, go back to our one of our first lectures on, on uh, objective truth. But anyways, if you believe that truth is objective, you can't believe that all religions are literally true because they make so many conflicting claims that contradict each other. So one religion will say one thing and another religion will say another, and those statements can't both be true at the same time. Um, otherwise, it just wouldn't, reality wouldn't make any sense. We'll be talking more about that here after a while. So, uh, and and then maybe you know some people that think that all all religions are meaningless. Well, uh, there's a lot of meaning in religions. Also, there's a lot of good uh, beliefs in a lot of religions. So, on the whole, um, religious scholars call these types of views naive pluralism because uh, people hold these views. Uh, the people that hold these views aren't learned in religion. They don't really know what religions are really saying and what they're all about. Okay. The second type of pluralism I wanted to talk about is called core pluralism. This is defined as the view that all religions share a common core, and this is what gives them value. So they might have peripheral differences, but they all share a common core. Now, this view is actually held by religious scholars, certain versions of it. Um, I, in my studies, I came across a view of, of religions called structuralism, uh, it's a view that comes from a scholar named Claude Levi Strauss. 
the it's it says it, uh, that uh, structures in the human mind give rise to similar structures in social and religious concepts. So uh, Levi Strauss is a uh, is a scholar who is trying to explain why religions are created in the first place. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure he's a naturalist who doesn't believe that religions are are he probably doesn't believe in the supernatural. His idea was that um, because we're all human beings and we all have similar minds, uh, we all end up creating religions. So that's what he he was a core pluralist because he thought all religions had that same thing in common. Um, now, someone who was not a naturalist was a, did believe in the supernatural and that religions can be true in what they're claiming is a famous uh, religious, well-known religious scholar named uh, Houston Smith. He's famous for his book, The World's Religions, if you've heard of that. Um, Smith had a theory that all religions have a tiered worldview. So uh, he thought that um, this tiered worldview involves a terrestrial plane, including a physical and psychic planes, a celestial plane, which would be kind of, uh, the celestial plane is kind of has a personal God aspect to it, an ultimate plane, which you would might call unlimited being, absolute truth, uh, the absolute true reality or God. And he believed that most or all religions point their practitioners to the ultimate plane, which is the object of all desire. So um, Smith would argue that all religions are the same as they're all pointing to the same reality. Okay. Um, a a view I think that and I've mentioned this in the introduction. There's a there's a uh, core pluralism view that I think is held by uh, lay people, people who don't have um, training in world religions, uh, non-religious scholars. This is the view that I've heard a lot of times. Have you ever heard someone say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something, or uh, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody? Uh, especially the saying. Um, all religions are the same at the core, okay? This would be, in my view, an unlearned core, core pluralism, okay? Now, I'm going to argue against this at, towards the end, but this is, an, this is basically a saying that all religions are the same because all religions are just trying to teach you a way to live a good life, okay? Now, um, yeah, I'm going to object to this here after a while, but just so you know, I think this would also be a type of core pluralism, this idea that all religions are the same at the core because they all have these ethical systems, all uh, are just trying to teach you a, a different way of living. Uh, excuse me, yeah, to teach you to live a good life. So uh, that would that would count as a, a core pluralism. Uh, a third type of pluralism is called Hindu pluralism. Okay, This is the view that all religions are ways that will eventually lead to Brahman. Now, in this series, we haven't really talked about what Hinduism teaches. Uh, if you know anything about Hinduism, it teaches that the world is Brahman. Uh, Brahman is kind of a, a term for ultimate reality, what Westerners usually would t call God. Uh, it, Maybe that reality is personal, maybe it's not. But anyways, they argue that the world, everybody, the universe, everything in it, including you and me, is God, is Brahman. And um, they have the, the different types of yoga in Hinduism, all the different types of yoga that, that give you a, a specific path to uh, achieve moksha, which is their word for enlightenment. And if you achieve moksha, you um, quit becoming, you quit the cycle of reincarnation and you merge back uh, 
to the one. You merge back with Brahman. Well, um, now, I, I want to mention this. Not, not all Hindus are going to be Hindu pluralists, but from what I've read, maybe a lot of them or the majority of them kind of do hold to something like this. But uh, Hindu pluralists believe that all all religions are ways that will eventually lead to Brahman, right? If you've ever studied Hinduism, Hinduism teaches that there's this uh, moral law of cause and effect in the universe called karma, right? And the more good karma you have, the better your next life is going to be. The better your current life is going to be, the better your next uh, life is going to be, right? Uh, Hinduism teaches in- reincarnation, so... Uh, when you die, that's not the end of you because you're going. Your soul is going to be reborn into another body, but it, it's not like resurrection in Christianity. Resurrection in Christianity is when you get your old body back and you're the same person. Reincarnation is the same soul but a different person, different body. So you're reborn into a whole different body. Well, uh, your karma determines your your next birth. So if you accumulated more bad than good karma in this life, you'll probably get a, a worse life in the next life. Uh, in fact, this is what they used to uh, kind of establish and prop up their caste system for a long time. Well, anyways, um, one view of it was that the more good karma you uh, establish for yourself, the better rebirth you would have, and eventually you'd get reborn as a Hindu priest, and you could spend your entire life trying to achieve moksha instead of just being born maybe as a worker or being born as a warrior, and you've got all these other worries of life to take care of, and you can't spend your life on the spiritual life uh, getting really close to to enlightenment. Well, along this type of thinking, what they would say is that, yeah, so you, you might be a Christian, you might be a Buddhist, you might be a, a Jew um, or a, a Muslim, but uh, you're not wasting your time because when you're doing those religions, uh, you're at least going to be building up good karma, and that good karma can lead you to uh, maybe being reborn uh, as a Hindu priest or at least being reborn in a Hindu country, right? And then you, and you keep attaining good karma, and you're eventually going to be led down the path to uh, becoming a Hindu priest and, and becoming... Um, enlightened one day so that so it's a type of pluralism because it's saying all religions are good you know they're all going to get you to brahman uh um, so you're not wasting your time if you're doing those okay identist pluralism is a uh is an is a last type of religious pluralism we're going to look at identist pluralism is defined as the view that people in all the major religions interact with one in the same transcendent reality Variously called God, the real ultimate reality. Identist pluralism is a little bit different from what we were looking at with core pluralism. Core pluralism is saying that they're all same the core in some significant way. Identist pluralism is saying that they're all religions are getting at the same one and transcendent reality, but they're all calling it something different. Have you ever heard of? Um, if you've ever heard of this. Uh, saying or or this uh, analogy um i've heard this said a lot of times people say that world religions are like a bunch of blind men grasping at an elephant you know the elephant is huge one blind person might say oh i think the elephant's a uh, no well they don't know it's an elephant right they're trying to figure out what it is one of them says uh, well this is a this is a spear because he's touching the elephant's tusk he can't see the so the whole elephant doesn't realize that that's just a part of it. Or one of them says, this is a rope 
because the the blind man is is touching the elephant's tail, or one of them thinks it's a tree because they're touching its uh, its legs and it's it's uh, thinking that they're tree trunks, or and one of them might think it's a snake because he's touching his uh, snout. Well, uh, they're all getting at the same reality. They just they're just calling it different things, and that's what uh, that's what the that's what the identist pluralism is saying is that all world religions are getting at the same ultimate reality. They're just calling it different things. And it has these different kind of, uh, uh, it has these different variations because these are all different cultures getting at that ultimate reality in their, in their own way. Uh, one example of an identist uh, pluralist was the, uh, the philosopher John Hick uh, John Hick believed that people join or stay in religions because they have religious experiences. And he thought that pe- because so many people from different faith system systems have religious experiences, this made it difficult or impossible to say that one religion was true or that one religion was superior to the others in some way. So he concluded that all people from all religions are experiencing the same ultimate reality, but in different ways depending on their cultures. Does that make sense? So like, John Hick was a, a dentist pluralist because he argued, well, you know, when we, we, we look at people, when we look at the world, we see all these cultures uh, have all these stories about these religious experiences, you know. So like one one person maybe had uh, Jesus appear to him in a vision. One person maybe uh, saw saw Buddha or, or, or some of the bodhisattvas coming back to help him achieve enlightenment and, and Buddhism and all sorts of religious experiences, you name it. Hick thought that this was a lot of evidence that's hard to explain if you just think one religion is true over the others. And uh, one thing he thought explained it all was that it's just ultimate reality trying to express itself in different ways to different people or uh, just different cultures interpreting that ultimate reality in different ways because they have different cultures. So uh, that's identist pluralism. So let's move on to exclusivism. This is the ne- next main uh, view that talks about the relationship between religions. Exclusivism I have defined as the view that all or many religions are not similar in important respects. Um, it, is, it is basically, exclusivism also can be just defined as the denial of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism being the, the, um, the statement that all or many religions are the same in some important respect. Okay? Exclusivism comes in really two main stripes. Uh, I, in my opinion, I think um, there's there's three main uh, three main religions that kind of most of the people in that religion hold to one of these views. Okay, I think that probably, and this is just from what I've read. You know, I don't, I'm not a Hindu, and I have not lived in a Hindu country, so I'm not 100 percent certain. But from my studies, uh, most Hindus are going to be leaning towards uh, religious pluralism. I would uh, argue to you that most Christians are probably exclusivist, thinking that Christianity is true and all other religions are false. When we get to inclusivism, I think um, uh, maybe uh, Buddhism, maybe Judaism are, are, are mainly inclusivist, but we'll talk about that when we get there, okay? But the two types of exclusivism I wanted to talk to you are, or, and mention are naive exclusivism and Christian exclusivism, okay? So naive exclusivism is defined as the view that only one religion is true and not one claim from the other religions is true. <laughs> and this is called naive exclusivism because religious scholars and really anyone who just looks at what all these religions are saying and doing 
would can realize that yes, maybe you think that one religion is true and the others are false, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every single belief in those other religions is false, right? They like you know, for example, maybe you believe that Christianity is true and other religions are false. Well, Christianity teaches you shouldn't murder. Well, guess what? So so also do so many other religions. They say you shouldn't murder. So every single thing and every single other religion can't be false. Um, that, that a lot of religions have a lot of good things and a lot of true things in them. Uh, you just need to look at them a little bit closer. So it, naive exclusivism is the idea that, that this one religion is true and every single belief in every other religion is false. Um, Christian exclusivism is not naive exclusivism, okay? Christian exclusivism is defined as the view that people cannot be saved from hell apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Christian exclusivism is, I would say, probably the uh, most widely held view of the relationship between religions among Christians, and um, also probably the view that the Christian church has held for the majority of the history of the church. And It's exclusivist because it's saying that um, all religions are not similar in important respects. Basically, Christian exclusivists believe that Christianity is true, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. We live in a theistic universe that was created by God. Jesus Christ is uh, came to earth to die for everyone's sins, and only only faith in Jesus Christ can can save you from hell. Right? Um, Christianity teaches that all people have sinned, all people deserve condemnation. So uh, the only way to be saved is to believe in Jesus Christ. So that's why it's exclusivist, because it's saying all other religions are making different claims, and those claims aren't true. Uh, if some religion says you can be saved or enlightened from some other, some other means besides Jesus Christ, it is wrong. Uh, Christians, exclusivists, argue that Jesus Christ is the only way. If you're doing some other religion besides Christianity, then you are wasting your time. Okay, That's what Christian exclusivism teaches. Now, those are types of exclusivism. Then you get sort of what I would maybe characterizes a middle ground view called inclusivism. And I've got this defined as the view that while all religions have value, one particular religion has more value than the rest. Okay, so you can see how it's kind of a middle ground view. The inclusivist says, well, one religion is better than the others, but that doesn't mean that the rest of them are just a waste of time. So let me show you different types of uh, inclusivism. One type is called Abrahamic inclusivism. The next one is Buddhist inclusivism. So we're going to go over these in turn. So the first one is Abrahamic inclusivism. I've got this defined as the view that while one religion is true, other religions can provide the means to salvation by the God of Abraham. An example of Abrahamic inclusivism is really found in Judaism. Uh, some Jews believe that non-Jews will be reconciled to God in the world to come. God made a lesser covenant with all peoples, and non-Jews can be reconciled through this covenant, although God made a greater covenant with the Jews. So, if you look at the Old Testament, you see that God, uh, you know, he creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the, supposed to be the father and mother of everybody who's ever lived. Uh, eventually, you know, God makes some promises to them that, uh, that, that the curses that he put on the earth at, uh, and when Adam and Eve sinned will be removed through a someone who descends from the seed of Eve. So one of her descendants will remove these curses. That's thought to be kind of a an early prototypical 
um, announcement of the gospel, basically. Uh, one of maybe the first prophecies that, about Jesus Christ. But anyways, as you go throughout all the stories, you see that God is trying to bring that prophecy to fruition through certain people, not just all human beings. Eventually, God narrows it down to the Jewish people, starting with Abraham. But he promises to Abraham that his, um, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and through his descendants, all nations will be blessed. So we think that this is kind of an outworking of that first prophecy to Adam and Eve, but it's through the Jewish people. It's through the, the descendants of Abraham. So um, that's what it was talking about that I just mentioned, a, a greater and a lesser covenant. And uh, Jews think that, um, and, and you know, Jewish people are going to believe different things within Judaism. Uh, a, a main view, uh, and, and oh, I forget which branch of Judaism it is. A main view in Judaism is that um, God is going to, a Messiah is going to come back. They don't believe it's Jesus Christ. They th they're still looking forward to the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament to come back. The Messiah is going to come back and ins install, uh, remove the curses uh, put on uh, creation in Genesis 3 and install a world a world government where the righteous, Messiah, life-giving Messiah is going to rule over all the earth. And uh, non-Jewish people, even though that wasn't... Uh, even though that wasn't promised to them in, in the covenants made with Moses and the Jewish people, uh, because of that lesser covenant with all of humanity through Adam and Eve, um, other non-Jewish people are still allowed to take part in this great thing at the, at the um, end of days. So that would be kind of an Abrahamic inclusivism where uh, salvation is open to non-Jews. So even though uh, you're, you're um, you know, even though you maybe have this other religion, even though you come from a different people group, you can still take part in that. Okay, uh, I think something that's really inclusive is is Buddhism, and maybe most Buddhists are this, maybe they're not. But another type of inclusivism is Buddhist inclusivism, defined as the view that Buddhism is the best way to enlightenment, but other religions can also lead to enlightenment. Okay, you could kind of see this a couple ways. Um, the Pluralism of Hinduism says that everything's ultimately going to lead to um, Brahman. Buddhism says that the best, this is just slightly different. It, they, see, they might seem like they're the same, but Buddhism is saying that Buddhism is the best way to enlightenment. But maybe you could reach enlightenment through another uh, religion. So I don't know how many Buddhists are actually going to hold to this, but this is, uh, this is a, a view that some Buddhists have held. You know, because uh, some types of Buddhism, if you look at the history of it all, some types of Buddhism have argued that you have to be a monk to reach enlightenment. But then there were other um, types of Buddhism that argued that anybody can reach enlightenment in this lifetime. You don't have to be reincarnated and work at it for all these lives. Uh, maybe you can be reincarnated even this lifetime if you do everything correctly. And it's all about, you know, giving giving way of attachment and realizing you um, that uh, you shouldn't be attached to anything, all that stuff. But uh, some Buddhists have taught that maybe you could reach enlightenment through another religion. The only thing is that Buddhism is the best way to reach enlightenment. Uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily saying this, but maybe you're going to reach enlightenment by accident through another religion, but you would definitely attain it. The best way to attain it, if you're going to attain it, is through Buddhism. So it's a type of inclusivism because it's saying, well, Buddhism is the best, but maybe you could reach enlightenment with it some other religion. Okay? 
So having mentioned all these different types of uh, views, what I want to do, uh, and of course, uh, I'm going to argue for Christian exclusivism, right? Uh, maybe maybe you didn't realize I was going to argue for exclusivism, but you should know if you've been listening to the series that I'm going to argue for Christ- a Christian viewpoint, right? Uh, and, and what I want to do here is argue why I think that all of the views except Christian exclusivism are false, okay? Um, so if you are a Christian or if you're interested in Christianity, this is the way I think uh, what Christianity is teaching, or at least what Christianity entails, okay? Um, because if you haven't, this is the 23rd episode in this uh, season on where I was talking about uh, an introduction to apologetics. So this is the 23rd episode. There's uh, 22 before this, and I walk through what I call the three-step apologetic method, right? Where I argue that truth is objective, uh, God exists, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is God. And 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 uh, in, a, in a really roundabout way, we... We use all that to show that uh, the Bible is the Word of God, okay? So um, there is good, there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true, and what does this entail for all these other world religions, okay? So first, I would say that naive pluralism is, is false. Um, hopefully we already kind of touched on this and realized that naive pluralism is false, right? Because uh, this is the view of people who haven't looked into religion that much and don't know what they're talking about. Um I already mentioned this a little bit, but I'll just say it one more time. So the idea that all religions are literally true is just really absurd, okay? Um, the reason why is because if you study what world religions are talking about, they in, every world religion entails all these claims about what reality is like, right? Um, Buddhism says that all of reality is this fleeting, uh, groundless series of events, so everything is temporary and, and life is suffering because we hold on to things that aren't permanent. We hold on to these temporary things. So if you are if you have an attachment to anything, you are going to suffer because it's eventually going to it's going to uh, pass away. So uh, but anyways, they teach that you need to be enlightened uh, so you can end this uh, cycle of reincarnation you're going through. Uh, one thing they teach is that your body, just like everything else in the universe, is uh is temporary. Even your personal identity, this, uh, you know, we, we think of ourselves as individuals, as persons. The Buddhism has this, do- what's called the doctrine of anatta, and that's um, literally tr- literally translated the doctrine of no self. They, they teach that personal identities are illusory. It's, it's one of the things that we're holding on to. And if you can just get, if you can even let go of that, you'll eventually reach enlightenment. Well, Christianity teaches we have immortal souls. So you do have a personal identity, and that identity is immortal because it lives, because it's grounded in your your immaterial soul that that is eternal. I mean, you know, everlasting, anyways. Like, uh, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna exist forever. So those two claims contradict each other, right? Hinduism teaches everything is Brahman. Uh, Christianity teaches that God is uh, is the grounding of all reality. God is this uh, eternal unchanging infinite being who created all of all of physical reality from nothing so god transcends the world right hinduism says that god is the world brahman is the world christianity teaches that god created and transcends the world these statements can't both be true at the same time islam for example teaches that jesus faked his death on a cross christianity teaches that jesus died on the cross those two can't be the same 
Uh, Islam teaches Jesus was just another prophet of Muhammad, uh, excuse me, of uh, Allah, and Christianity teaches that Jesus is God. So uh, those claims can't be true at the same time. Judaism teaches that the Messiah is yet to come. Christianity teaches that the Messiah will come back a second time because he's already came to the earth. Those can't be true at the same time, right? You just think about where all these religions say you're going. Buddhism says you're going to get reincarnated. um, Hinduism says you're going to get reincarnated. Judaism, Islam, Christianity say you have an immortal soul that's either going to go to heaven or hell. So these, all these religions, you know, if they were all true at the same time, uh, how can I go get reincarnated if my soul is going to spend eternity in heaven or hell? So um, anybody who spends two seconds studying world religions is going to realize that they can't all be true. Okay, they can't all literally be true. You know, so, <laughs> oh, I, I forgot to mention my slides. The, the very first slide showed this, uh, maybe you've seen this bumper sticker. It says coexist, you know. And those of us who have, especially apologists, Christian apologists, but uh, the, those of us who have training in, in religions, I mean, it depends on what the person's trying to say. You, it's just one word, so you never know what someone's trying to say with the bumper sticker. But the, what I always get, the message is, well, they're all just a good way, they're all just a different way of living a good life, so let's all get together and, and just forget about our differences, you know. Uh, but I, I've always thought this was this is a funny kind of answer to that. This is from uh, Frank Turek's ministry called Cross Examined. Um, he's got this thing that says says saying uh, coexist. It it lists all the it has all these symbols from all the different religions, but it spells contradict. Under that, it says they can't all be true. So <laughs> I've always enjoyed that. I thought that was a lot better. Just you know, get the message out there that like look. All religions are saying different things, and if you're if you're interested in truth, then you need to examine what they're saying about reality. Then look at reality and test those claims against what you see, and then and then figure out which one you think is true. But anyway, so that's why we would say naive pluralism is wrong, is because all religions can't literally be true. Uh, you know, it's logically possible that all religions are false. But just logic alone at least shows you that they can't all be true because they're making contradictory claims, right? Um, I, you know, obviously, I don't think they're all false. I think Christianity is true, and and you've by this point you've heard all a lot of the evidence that leads to that conclusion. But uh, there you have it. So identist pluralism is the next one I wanted to. to argue against okay if you remember identist pluralism is the view that people in all major religions interact with one in the same transcendent reality this is the one where we showed the analogy of the elephant and all the blind people are grasping at the elephant in the same way the identist pluralist argues that that's what world religions are doing they're all grasping at the same ultimate reality they're just kind of um, instantiating that in their own terms in their own different cultural ways well uh, people, I, I've even read uh, articles arguing against this by religious scholars. One one scholar, I, I don't remember who it was, pointed out that uh, this kind of uh, this kind of is like a almost like a condescending view of world religions. Uh, you know, if you go up to a practitioner of these religions, say, go up to a Catholic priest, go up to a Buddhist monk. And you ask them, do you think that your religion is getting at the same ultimate reality that all the other religions are getting at? 
nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100, you're probably going to get the answer, no. My religion doesn't teach that those other religions are true. My religion teaches that it is true, and this is the way to understand reality, right? So if you are an identist pluralist, maybe that helps make sense out of the conundrum of all these world religions and and religious experiences. But you're kind of patting all these... uh, religious practitioners on the head going, oh, that's cute. You think your religion is true, but you don't realize that you're grasping at the same ultimate reality as everybody else does. So a problem with identist pluralism is that it's a view of religion that's not held by religious practitioners. Uh, it's kind of condescending. Uh, and here's, an, but here's, the, here's, what, here's the kicker with identist pluralism. The analogy and kind of the thought doesn't really work that well, okay? Especially this analogy. I mean, just because think about what uh, think about what's happening here. Notice that all of the blind people are getting at the same reality, the elephant, and they're describing it in these different ways. But notice this: every single blind person is wrong, right? One of them saying it's a spear. Another one saying it's a snake. It's a tree, it's a wall, it's a rope, it's a fan. They're all saying these different things, but every single one of them is wrong. <laughs> so, uh, identist pluralism, kind of in the same way, uh, is make, is basically this claim that, well, you know, they're all getting at the same ultimate reality. They're just doing it in their own way. But when you actually look at the claims of world religions, they're not describing the same reality. They're 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 less to describing the same reality and they're more clo- they're closer to what these what it looks like when you look at the different blind people you know a wall is very different from a rope right and that's kind of what the descriptions of ultimate reality or of god sound like when you look at the different world religions the judaic uh Abra- excuse me the abrahamic religions tell you that god created the world uh, Hindu Hinduism tells you that God is the world. Buddhism tells you that the world is just an ungrounded series of events and that most things are illusory, temporary things. So uh, how could all of these things be true? They can't all be true. And they can't even be similar descriptions of the same ultimate reality. So identist pluralism entails, whether an identist pluralist likes it or not, entails that all religions are basically wrong. You know, they're trying to say that, oh, it's a snake, but it's really an elephant. So it, it, it entails that they're all wrong and that even what they believe is wrong. You know, so like they're going to tell you, no, we think this is true. It's not just getting at something higher that I'm not explaining to you. Uh, so it, it's undermining what the religions claim themselves. And it's basically saying they're wrong. So that's why we would say, you know, probably identist pluralism is not the way to go. Now... I at least want to dispel, let's talk about core pluralism, okay? This idea that all religions are the same at the core in some important way. One thing I don't think I've mentioned, I've, I've uh, kind of, oh, you know what, I was, I was about to jump ahead of myself. Let's, let's talk about this view that I mentioned where people say that all religions are the same at the core, okay? I don't want to talk about Levi Strauss's idea, we'll get to that in the next couple slides, but let's say that you you are one of these people that holds that that uh, that more naive view, uh, the more unlearned view that when people say, well, all religions are the same at the core because they're all just a, a different way to live a good life. You know, I think one of my professors uh, at seminary, uh, 
um, called this the functional view of religion. Some people think that religions just have a function, and that's their main purpose. And that function is to live a good life. Well, uh, this view is, is you know, and, and I, I've seen this because I teach an Introduction to World Religions course, um, and I've even seen this in the intro to uh, World Religions textbook, in an intro book. It, it mentions that, that uh, people who think that all world religions are the same and they're all trying to teach a good way to living is just something that people don't, that people who haven't had instruction in religion might think is true. But if you did have instruction in religion, you'd know this is false. So, uh, you know, this view that all religions are the same at the core, right? What is it saying? They're, it's saying that in the, at the core of each religion is these uh, ethical teachings, What's on the peripheral is, is all these other, you know, things that aren't really important at the end of the day, okay? Uh, they're all teaching you a way to give a, live a good life. And, and that's what we saw in our slide. Um, if, you're, if you're listening on a podcast, you aren't seeing this. But I showed a slide that uh, shows all these world religions. It's kind of a poster. It shows all these world religions um, on the outside in these smaller circles with the names and little descriptions of them on the inside of all the circles in the middle is this globe that shows the world and on the world it's written the golden rule you know so this is kind of a a, a visual way of stating what i was getting at this uh, core pluralism that thinks that all religions are the same at the core they all have this golden rule this ethical teaching at the center and the rest of them are just variations on that okay well, uh, if you study these religions, though, you'll realize that that's that's this view is just completely false. Okay, it's just a, a complete misconception of what religions are doing. Okay, what what I want you, what I want everyone to realize is that what's what is at the core of each religion are these claims about reality. Okay, uh, uh, what a religion claims the world is like is going to be its core. And then, based off of these core beliefs about reality, will flow the peripheral beliefs about morality. Does that make sense? Um, if you see on my slide here, I've got... So, uh, first of all, you know, we've said before, world religions make contradictory worldview claims, right? Um, they can't all be literally true, like I said when we're talking about naive pluralism. But the thing is, these these worldview claims are what contradict each other. And these worldview claims are what's at the core of each religion. From these worldview claims flow their, their arguments about morality. So let, let's I've got a, I've got a couple slides talking about Buddhism, Christianity, and Hinduism, right? Buddhism says that uh, you should... Like what the main claim of Buddhism is that suffering ends when you achieve nirvana. Okay, suffering ends when you achieve nirvana. That's its worldview claim. Um, life is suffering, and the way to attain uh, enlightenment to end suffering is the noble eightfold path, which is all the things that Buddhism teaches. When you do that, you achieve nirvana. Christianity says that uh, God made the world and made humans in His image. They've all sinned. They all deserve punishment, but salvation is available through Jesus Christ. Hinduism claims about reality that um, we are all Brahman. We're all confused pieces of Brahman, but uh, and and we'll be confused as long as we are, uh, you know, as long as we are lacking some knowledge. But uh, 
And as long as you're confused, you keep getting reincarnated over and over and over. But if you can do the yogas, you will achieve enlightenment. You'll merge back with the one. Okay. Now, from these worldview claims flows the morality, right? The Noble Eightfold Path includes the Hindu moral teachings, uh, right living, right speech, right action, all that kind of stuff. Those moral rules are included in the Noble Eightfold Path. But why would you even do the Noble Eightfold Path? You would do the Noble Eightfold Path only if you thought that all life is suffering and temporary and you need to achieve uh, nirvana, achieve enlightenment. Does that make sense? Christianity, like, so uh, Jesus taught that we need to show love and mercy to other people, but that's only because we were shown love and mercy in the first place, right? A lot of his teachings, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, uh, be loving, don't hate, don't murder, don't kill, don't steal. All of these things flow from the reality that human beings are made in God's image and represent God on earth. They should forgive each other because God has forgiven them. They should do good because they are supposed to reflect God's good nature. Does that make sense? You're you're acting moral in these ways because of what it says about reality. Hinduism says that since we are all Brahmin, it doesn't make sense for you to hurt somebody else because if you hurt somebody else, then you're hurting yourself. Uh, a part of the, the yoga training to achieve moksha includes moral teachings, but that's all a means to the end of achieving moksha. Does that make sense? So what, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to tell you is that what these religions say, what their core, what sets them apart is what they say about reality, right? So Christianity is a completely different religion from Hinduism because of the claims about reality that Christi Christianity makes apart from Hinduism. Uh, and then it teaches these things about how to live a good life, but all that's based off of what it claims about the world. If all of these religions were the same at the core in their core beliefs, then there wouldn't be a bunch of world religions. There would just be a bunch of denominations. Does that make sense? Uh, so... I hope this makes sense what I'm saying. At the core of each religion is all these claims about reality. At the peripheral are all these claims about morality. But those peripheral claims about reality flow from the core claims about, excuse me, those peripheral claims about morality flow from the core beliefs about reality. So um, if you just know what uh, these religions are saying about reality, you'll realize that all religions are not the same in the core if they were all the same at the core, they'd be denominations. They wouldn't be different religions. Okay, so that that view is just false. But but having done all these negative critiques of all these other views, why do I think that Christian exclusivism is true? Well, um, I've been hinting at this and saying this over and over, kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit. But why is Christianity true? It's because of logic, right? It's because I'm, we've already argued in this series that truth is objective, right? So and Obviously, all throughout all these videos leading up to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the modern trilemma argument, I was providing you evidence to believe that Christianity is true, that truth exists, God exists, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Along the way, we've been, whether I've been mentioning it or not, we've been eliminating the possibility of these other religions being true, okay? So whenever we went through all these arguments for God's existence, 
I was arguing for the classical, uh, the under classical understanding of God, that God is this transcendent, infinite, immaterial being who has always existed, who's a necessary being, and who created the world. Uh, since we saw evidence that that is true, that is, uh, it's true to believe that God, uh, the God of theism, exists. Uh, we were actually getting evidence that Hinduism is false, right? Because Hinduism says that God is the world. If God is the world, then uh, does that mean if if theism is true that God created the world, then Hinduism can't be true because pantheism is this idea that God is the world, but pantheism and, and uh, monotheism can't be true at the same time. Uh, religions like Mormonism and paganism that believe in polytheism, there's these many finite gods, those can't be true if theism is true. Obviously, atheism can't be true. And I would classify Buddhism as kind of like a spiritual atheism because Buddhism doesn't believe that there is a grounding to reality. It doesn't believe in a, a Brahmin a grounding of reality that is the world. It doesn't believe in a in God of theism that there is this grounding of reality in, uh, in a transcendent God. So atheism, polytheism, and pantheism can't be true if theism is true, and that's what I argued. That's what we showed evidence that monotheism is correct. Also, once you've once you've uh, seen that monotheism is correct, that that gets rid of things like Hinduism, Mormonism, paganism, Buddhism, any of those that involve pantheism, polytheism, or atheism. You're still gonna be once you eliminate those, though, you're gonna be left with Abrahamic religions, right? Like Judaism. Uh, Islam and Christianity, those three believe in the God of monotheism. Uh, maybe s slightly different variations of what that God is like, but uh, you're still left with those three. Well, once we went through the evidence for the, the historical, uh, factual resurrection of Jesus Christ, that establishes that Islam is false and Judaism is false, right? And those religions themselves uh, teach you know, people who are Jews today, who there's Messianic Jews, if you ever heard of that, those are Jewish Christians, so they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But anyone else who's a, who's a practicing Jew, like Orthodox Judaism today, will deny that Jesus Christ was the Messiah mentioned in the Old Testament. So they claim that Jesus isn't the Messiah. Christians claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And is, uh, Islam, in the Quran, it says that Jesus never said that he, he rose from the dead. The Quran claims that, uh, and th you know, this is coming from Muhammad, who lived hundreds of years, I think it's like 300 years after, uh, <laughs> it's like 300, 400 AD. So this is centuries removed from the events of Christianity. Uh, you know, Jesus rising from the dead and his, his apostles going out. Well, anyways, uh, the Quran says that Jesus was just a prophet and he never claimed to be God. The Quran says that Jesus was uh, just faked his death on the cross and was brought up to heaven by Allah. So all of these religions are claiming different things about Jesus. And that w since we established that Jesus did really did rise from the dead, that means that Islam and Judaism uh, are false. Okay, Judaism would only be true in the sense that um, it was all leading up to Jesus Christ. But if, you're, if you were a Jew, a practicing Jew, who believed that Jesus wasn't Messiah, you'd be wrong, is what I'm saying. Islam is wrong because it's claiming that Jesus um, uh, didn't rise from the dead. Okay? So, there you have it. Th that's, that's one reason why I would argue that Christian exclusivism is true. Because, uh, well, and here's, an, here's another thing. So, we've already looked at a Bible passage. It's not only that um, religions aren't all the same at the core, because... Uh, 
if if um, if the Bible really is the Word of God, like I argued in all those videos, then everything it says about the world uh, and, and about God is true. So um, this eliminates the truth of the major worldview claims of these other religions. Maybe there's other things in the world religions that's true, like uh, like some of their moral teachings and other things and other historical facts. Maybe right. But uh, their, their main claims about reality and Jesus are false. Only Christianity is true. But another thing is, I would argue that uh, I, I, would, I would make Christianity an exclusivist view because of the things that you see Jesus saying in the Bible. You know, in, in videos, what was it, 1 through 21, I think, 1 through 21 or 1 through 22, we, we were establishing that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, okay? And if that is true, then some things that we see in the Bible seem to point to Christianity being exclusivism. So first, I wanted to read you a few passages to just show you why I think Christianity is exclusivist. And um, the first one, oh, oh yeah, well, there's three main types of Bible passages, okay? There's three main types that I'm going to read to you. The first one are passages showing that Jesus said he's the only way to salvation, okay? The second type is Jesus commanding the church to evangelize. And the third type is Paul and the other New Testament writers indicating that salvation is only possible through Jesus. Okay, So the first kind of passages we see in the Bible, like I said, are Jesus saying that he is the only way. Um, one example is Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, that's one passage that shows uh, that uh, you, you can't know the Father unless you know Jesus. John fourteen six is what we talked about earlier. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Another passage is Acts 4, verse 12. It says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And he's talking about Jesus. Okay. Uh, finally, uh, I was going to show you 1 Timothy uh, ver um, chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. So, I mean, we could look at the context of these, but they're pretty straightforward statements saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. You can't know the Father unless you know Jesus Christ. And if you are looking for salvation, it is only found in Jesus Christ. So um, Jesus makes all these statements of, uh, saying that he is the only way. Uh, and here in a second, we'll see that the apostles never indicate that there's another way to be saved. Um but Jesus also commanded the church to evangelize. Okay, I'm going to show you three passages talking about that. And one one conclusion we draw from this is that if you could do some other religion, if you could practice some other religion and, and attain salvation, then why why is it that Jesus was so adamant that his apostles and, and their disciples preach the gospel message to all the world? It wouldn't make sense that... He would command everyone to live their entire life and to even suffer in service to him preaching the gospel to the world if there was no point in preaching the gospel because everybody eventually gets saved no matter what. Okay, So let me show you some passages like this. In uh, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Luke 24 verses 44 through 47 says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Finally, Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus told all Christians to be be his disciples. And to, uh, one main thing of being his disciple is that you are supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel, even if you're persecuted and killed for it. And why would he do that if preaching the gospel didn't make any difference because you could just do any other world religion and be saved through it? So that's another piece of evidence that for Christian exclusivism. Uh, the the last one, the last kind of uh, passages I wanted to show you is a couple showing that Paul and the other New Testament writers never indicated that salvation is possible in any other way. So the first verse is Ephesians two verses twelve through thirteen, says, "Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world." But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Uh, this is uh, Paul talking, and he says that at one time people were separated from Christ, excluded from the covenants of God and the promises, and without any hope. But now through Christ Jesus, they're brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. John 4 verse 22 says, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Um, I thought I had another passage on that, but uh, th- this is just another way. Uh, and there, there's even more verses than this. You know, um, there, there's people that ask, "How can I be saved?" And they just say, "Believe in Jesus, uh, and and proclaim Him, and be baptized." No one ever says, well, you're fine because the religion you have is just as good as Christianity. It's just maybe not the best way to Jesus or not the best. You know, your your religion is OK. It's just not the best way to salvation or your religion ultimately is to salvation. So don't worry about it. You just do what you do. Be you, you know, you be you. <laughs> no, they always say you need to believe in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to salvation except through Jesus. Uh, that's what Jesus said. That's what the apostles said, and it makes sense that that would be the only way to salvation since Jesus told the church to preach the gospel to the world, even if they're going to get persecuted and killed for it, okay? So that's the evidence. That's why I think Christian exclusivism is the best. So what we're saying is Christian exclusivism, this idea that uh, you know religions aren't the same. They're not the same because most of them make false claims about reality okay so christianity is the best because um, let me go back to my slide on exclusivism christian exclusivism excuse me yeah so you know it's not naive exclusivism i'm not saying that everything in every other religion is false there's a lot of good things in them 
But uh, the main things they say about reality are false. And we have established this not because we're bigots or because I, I'm ignorant of them. It's because of what I do know of them and what I do know about reality and all the arguments I've made for God's existence and the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, right? What we're saying is it's exclusivism because doing other world religions, practicing those, is one, it's a waste of time. Because it doesn't, the other religions don't teach the, the truth of the gospel and that Jesus Christ died for our sins. So it's a waste of time, and it can't, those religions can't save you, okay? Those religions don't teach you about Jesus, so you can't be saved. You're still going to be dead in your sins. And if you practice that religion your whole life uh, and, you, and you reject Christianity, then you're going to go to hell. So that's the kind of exclusivism I'm saying that seems to be the case, not only because these other types of views are just wrong ways of seeing it, but also because I've shown all the evidence that shows that Christianity is true, and that entails that all other religions are false in their major claims about reality. And if you're doing those, you're not going to be saved, and uh, you're wasting your time. Okay? So I don't. it sounds really harsh, but if you will just listen uh, to everything I've argued for, if you haven't already listened to the other lectures on the truth of Christianity, um, I'm just stating the facts, okay? I'm just stating what I believe to be true based on the evidence that I see in reality. So, um, so yeah. Now, uh, having said all that, there's still some questions that you might have. Uh, there have been Christian universalists who believe who are kind of like core pluralists or kind of like religious pluralists who think that everyone's going to be saved no matter what. There's been Christian inclusivists who think that you can, even though Christianity is the one true religion, you can still be saved, maybe, by uh, being in other religions. And then there's Christian exclusivists, which is probably the major Christian view throughout the history of the church. Because there's all these different views within Christianity, in the next lecture, I want to touch on that. We're going to be talking about the question of, what about those who were never who never heard the gospel? Because there's still some tension there. And that's what we're going to be touching in the last one. But in this one, I just wanted to present to you all these views on religious pluralism and give you reasons why I think a Christian should be a Christian exclusivist. Okay, But we're going to talk about Christian exclusivism some more and try to defend it more in the next lecture. While also trying to answer this question of what about what happens to those people who never heard about Jesus? Are they going to be held accountable? Would a loving God send them to hell anyways? So we'll talk about that in the next lecture. Here's our questions for reflection. Uh, if you remember, our first question was, what do you think is the most compelling piece of evidence for the reliability of the New Testament and the truth of Jesus' resurrection and why? If you don't know the answer to that because you haven't heard that, uh, please do uh, go back to the episodes before this and check out all the evidence I provided for the reliability of the New Testament, uh, manuscripts and authors, and all the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Um, you will highly enjoy those, I hope. Uh, the second question reflection is, how do you think the world's religion started? The third one is, have you heard the statement, all religions are the same at the core? Four and five are, do you think all religions have something or several things in common? And the last one, number five, is, if so, does this have any implications for the nature and or origin of religions? I'd love to hear what you think about the answer to those questions. I've got... Uh, Opinions that I haven't touched on, especially for the origin of religions, but we don't have time to cover those, so if you want to interact with me, please do. The quote I have for this lecture and for the next few is from Frank Turek. Uh, he wrote a, a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I highly recommend that book, by the way, if you haven't read it. Frank Turek says, 
Good reason provides all the information we need to see that the very existence of evil is a contradiction for atheism. If evil is real, then atheism is false. Uh, we're going to be talking about the problem of evil over the next few lectures. Uh, not in the next one, but some of the ones coming up after that. So th I, that's why I've got that quote going. Um, at the end of all these, I like to plug the seminary that I went to, Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. Um, if you are interested in apologetics, if you're interested in learning about these things that I've been talking about throughout this series, I highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, there you are um, near uh, Matthew, Matthews, North Carolina, um, near Charlotte, North Carolina, and it is a great school. Uh, you can learn all about apologetics, philosophy, theology, you can train to become a pastor, train to go into the ministry, learn all about the Bible. You name it, they have it, all the way from a just certificate programs in the languages and the Bible and apologetics to a bachelor's degree, master's degree, master of divinity, PhD, doctor of ministry. They've got it all. And um, they specialize in online learning. But of course, you can go there in person, but they also have a lot of almost every single program they have is online. So it's accessible to everyone. And um, like I said, I highly recommend it. If you are interested in that, go to www.ses.edu and check them out. I also want to um, say a few words about Kingdom Preparatory Academy. This is the classical Christian school where my kids go. It is in Lubbock, Texas. So um, I obviously highly recommend it. Uh, we love it. Our kids go there. I've told people that uh, if I had to work two jobs to send my kids there, I would. I, I love it. Um, it's a classical school, so they teach your kids uh, how to think, not what to think. It's obviously grounded in the Bible and Scripture, so they teach a Christian worldview just to help you out, you know, to help you out so that they're being taught that at school and also at home. And it, it's a university model, so a lot of times your kids go to school just on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I think in the early years it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then later on it becomes Tuesday, Thursday. Um, but it gets them ready for, it's a university model, so so they've been doing this their whole life. When they get to college and they're, and they're taking those weird schedules and it's not always 9 to 5 Monday through uh, Friday, um, it's not a it's not a hard thing for them. But yes, I highly recommend it if you are looking for a classical Christian alternative to education in the Lubbock, Texas area. Um, go to kingdomprep.org is the website, or you can just Google it and uh, give them a call, pay them a visit. Uh, we love it, and I highly recommend it. Well, that's it for this lecture. Um, and yes, in the next lecture, we're going to be talking about what happens to those who never heard the gospel. What is the destiny of the unevangelized? I hope to see you there. And I hope you have a great day.